Smoking is a form of natural gas filling An alternative to oil Cause the oil kept spilling Bringing jobs to small towns So everybody's willing People turn on the lights And the drill is making killing Water goes into the pipe The pipe into the ground The pressure cranks Fishes 7,000 feet down The cracks release the gas That powers your town That will frack Yeah, totally frack Coming to you from the West Coast This is Politicos Today is March 22nd, 2018 And this is episode 78 Politicos is your weekly politics recap With the West Coast perspective If you haven't already Make sure to subscribe And leave us a review Wherever you found us Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicos Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash politicos. I'm Scott Glamboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Today, we're going to be talking about the LNG corporate welfare that BC is always into, and why I guess Trump is BC's fault. First, we have to thank our premier sponsors, Lindsay Teds and Blake Hodson, for helping make the show possible. Politicos is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's brand new daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC Legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast receive 25% off subscriptions when you enter the offer code Politicoast. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. And a quick note, I dropped the first episode of Canby Report into this feed, so subscribers, who hopefully you all are, will have had a chance to see that and maybe listen to it. We also pushed it really hard on Twitter over this last week and saw a lot of people tweeting about it, like more than have ever tweeted about this show. And we still get more listeners. I have the numbers and a surprising number of really positive emails, including one from former mayor, Sam Sullivan, who felt the need to correct us on all kinds of historical errata. So episode two will be Sam corrects can be report. But that said, it sounds like everyone has so far enjoyed the show and we won't drop more episodes of that here. So if you do want to subscribe to that, go to canbyreport.ca. Yeah, I give it a listen. It's definitely uh, worthwhile checking out and a good little podcast. Thank you. For our first segment, it's not corporate welfare when we do it. The BC NDP dropped a bit of an announcement today saying, we have a new approach to how we're going to get liquefied natural gas going in this province. You know how Christy Clark said she was going to do it? No, this time we're going to do it, and it's totally different. But not really. It's an interesting pitch. They're making the same kind of ambitions and goals for LNG and BC as the Clark government seemed to, which is, you know, get the fair return for our natural resources, guaranteed jobs for British Columbians. There's a bit in there about partnerships with First Nations and trying to live up to our climate commitments. The... Details itself are basically that the NDP wants to take PST off the manufacturing and construction of an LNG plant. They want to pretty much exempt a future LNG project from carbon tax price increases, which kind of defeats the point of a carbon tax, but we can get into that. And they also aren't going to charge this LNG project some specific uh, income tax rates that the Clark Liberals have given in. So basically... I read this as being a bit more of a LNG corporate-friendly policy than Christy Clark brought in, which is something. <laughs> Environmentalists are naturally pissed off, most notably Andrew Weaver, who was shouting out today, this violates our confidence and supply agreement. I've lost confidence in this government. I can't trust them anymore. And when asked, well, will you bring the government down over this? He said, we'll see, maybe. I don't know yet. We'll have to see when the actual legislation comes forward in the fall, which is Weaver's go-to approach. Yeah, it's a way to delay because everyone knows he's not going to bring the government down until the proportional representation referendum happens. Conveniently, also in the fall. 
So there's no official confidence vote until potentially next spring when the next budget comes through. The throne speech is not going to go to a confidence vote and the first budget has completely passed. So the only way Weaver could really bring this government down is to bring forward a motion of no confidence and then hope the liberals side with him on it, which is a toss up. He could probably get it to happen, but they'd have to be willing to go to an election. So Weaver's kind of just left stamping his feet angrily upset that he feels betrayed, even though, as far as I remember, the NDP never really campaigned against LNG. No, they didn't. They kind of want the, if it's in BC's best interest line on the campaign trail and said the right things to different groups to kind of get them to think they were kind of on their side on it without taking a firm stance on the issue. And it makes sense from the NDP's point of view, I guess. They want to be able to claim they support jobs and they're willing to put money into resource development projects. Part of the problem is the NDP's base is split on the issue. You have the urban environmentalists who hate this, hate Site C, and then you have the kind of blue-collar base who will be building these sorts of projects who, you know, want the work. And it was always interesting to see how they tried to walk that line during the election. And post-election, it seems fairly clear which side's winning out. I wouldn't say it's winning out the union base side or the blue-collar side. There have been a couple specific things, particularly around fish farms, where they've been a bit more heavy-handed or a bit more bullish on bringing in the regulations. Site C and this are definitely on the, we're taking the resource side, but then on Kinder Morgan, they're taking the environmentalist side all out. So it's kind of a have both pieces of cake situation. Yeah, although I, I will point out that the ones that are very clearly entirely within the provincial domain, they seem to be siding with the union base and the ones that have federal components to them, whether it's the fisheries acts or the... Uh, pipeline regulation through the National Energy Board, they're taking the more environmentalist stance, which is interesting in how that's divided. So a big chunk of what the NDP is trying to look at is this LNG Canada project, which is actually a follow-up to the Petronas project we talked about in episode one, way back in October 2016. This LNG Canada project is a, a joint venture of Shell, PetroChina, and a couple other companies, none of which are Canadian, but they want to open a big LNG terminal at Kitmat, have a natural gas pipeline from Northeast BC to there. They estimate it would have create 10,000 construction jobs and then 950 full-time jobs thereafter, which for Northern BC would be pretty significant. Ultimately, though, all of these tax incentives and pretty much corporate welfare the NDP would be giving away would forego $6 billion of potential revenue from this project. Now that's over its lifespan of 40 years. So we'd still take in 22 billion roughly instead of 28. But at some point you have to go, why are we subsidizing? Like if the project can't work, why do we yeah, have to it, keep subsidizing? A... I guess it's because we're competing with everyone else who subsidizes their projects. Yeah. But if the U S wants to make natural our natural gas cheaper, should we really stand in their way of that or then hand out a bunch of corporate welfare as a result of that? Paying $6 billion for 950 jobs for 40 years. I feel like there are more efficient ways to do that. Like 
just give people money, just basic income them that much money, it'll be fine. Pick 950 random people in northern BC and hand them money. It would actually probably be cheaper. And it's ironic as well because Horgan himself had said in 2013 that Shell does not need handouts from the government, in my view, to which he's totally flipped his tune. And, and now he's saying his the difference between him and the Clark government is where the Clark government talked about for five years, maybe one, two, three, five LNG facilities, but there being zero, he's coming forward and saying, we might get a decision on one. <laughs> Completely different. Totally different. So we have Weaver feeling really upset and really betrayed. Part of his ultimatum, which is like his seventh ultimatum this year, is that the NDP will be bringing forward its climate plan together with, I guess, whatever bill makes this possible in the fall. I saw on Ravi Kalon's Facebook page, he was posting about it and his constituents were pissed. And he said, well, we will have a comprehensive plan to promote renewable energy and address climate change in the coming weeks. So I think that will couple with this. And it then becomes the Trudeau-esque, we have a price on carbon, but we also can only make that work if we're also building pipelines to get more carbon out. Actually, and that's actually the interesting question is the federal uh, minimum carbon price. Does this inception contradict that at all? Yeah. And how does that work? I, I haven't dug into the federal. wonder if you'd almost have to make the carbon tax on everything else in BC, like a dollar more to a- so it averages out to $50 because you're subsidizing one. But regardless, it completely defeats the point of a carbon tax if you exempt carbon emitters from the tax. Especially the most intensive ones. Yes. Like, like the, the whole point of the carbon tax is to incentivize people to use less carbon-intensive means of production or transportation or whatever the process is to you know, make the carbon-intensive one more expensive compared to the others. And I think... That points out, like, right now, they're driving a bunch of big trucks around to build Site C. They have to pay the carbon tax on the fuel they use to drive those trucks, and they have to pay the carbon tax on the concrete that gets poured to make that dam. They're going to be paying more carbon tax on a, arguably, a lower carbon energy generating facility. I think it's really arguably. Like, natural gas is definitely more carbon intensive than hydro. And so we're carbon subsidizing a fossil fuel industry with money made off of a hydro dam. Not directly, but not a great look. No, you know, not not at all. And it's, if you're going to cut a break on any taxes, and you shouldn't be cutting a break on any taxes, like the carbon tax is the worst one for this. And it's not going to work, I don't think, even if the NDP does win and get LNG Canada coming forward and they build this pipeline and they build this LNG terminal and they deliver these jobs. The liberals are still the party of LNG because that's how Clark branded it for so long. And the NDP's base of power is not up there anymore. They have one or two seats. They don't want to lose those, but is this worth burning their environmentalist base for? I guess the one thing this does do is let them undercut the BC liberals arguments a bit. It does also take the focus off the speculation tax and all those other things, which I'm sure the liberals will get back to. But when you take the key plank of Christy Clark's 2013 election win 
and look more successful at it in six months than she did in four years, it's hard for that party to really say much more than, what did they say? Finally? Yeah, that's basically the response I've seen was the, well, this has been an unreasonably long time coming. You know, what the hell took the NDP so long on this? That's not a great look when that's your criticism of a brand new government. Well, moving on to segment two, why Trump is BC's fault. So guess the big international story this week has been the whole Cambridge Analytica fallout. It's worth going through and taking the time and reading the pieces in the Guardian Observer that came out last weekend about Christopher Wiley, his whistleblowing, Cambridge Analytica, how they got data from Facebook and whether it was a breach or not. I can give a quick summary of it, but it's complicated enough that I don't think either of us have really fully wrapped our head around. I think what's most interesting for us to dwell on or think about is the guy at the center of this story is from Victoria. Like, we get to be famous for something, I guess. And we produce this really strange character. The cover of the uh, Observer piece, I think talked about Christopher Wiley as the pink-haired gay vegan who drove Steve Bannon's propaganda machine, which is just a mindfuck kind of thing that you can't help but just go, what is even going on? And so Globe and Mail and a few others have, including Times Colonist, have had some good features on Wiley. He seemed to be just a really bright kid. He didn't end up graduating high school, though. I guess he had some bullying issues when he was in high school in Victoria. The school tried to cover it up or something. His parents fought a lawsuit and ended up winning to a point where BC had to bring in anti-bullying policies because of him, which is kind of cool and a good result of a shitty situation, a shitty childhood. But he went on, got involved in the federal liberal party under Dion and Ignatieff and had this idea of like, using psychometric data, the all the things you like on Facebook to develop profiles of people and target ads based on that. He came up with ideas around that, and he was like, oh, the federal liberals should take this on. And we obviously know that the liberals under Dion and Ignatieff did not do any of that and ran two of the worst campaigns we've seen the liberals run in modern history. Yeah, well, to be fair, they they could have done both a really terrible campaign and had a decent data back end. I'm not necessarily sure the ground game was their main problem. Yeah. Wiley moves on from the federal liberals, goes to England and works for the liberal Democrats who also ignore him and he gets frustrated with that. And I think he even managed to pull some data to show like, you're going to lose more than half your seats. Now, he was wrong. They ended up losing all but like eight seats in the following election, but his point was valid. At the same time, this Cambridge research project around Facebook data was starting, and he saw that and got involved, and finally someone would listen to his ideas and give him the opportunities, and he just kind of ran with it, you know, probably like 20, 21 years old at this time, given a really cool job to do some data work on the stuff you're interested in couple years later he looks back and goes well that was fucked up because now trump's elected and brexit's happening and it's partially his fault because he's sounding pretty remorseful these days the technical 
bit, as far as I understand it, is everyone who's used Facebook has seen like Farmville or stupid games and apps and websites that say, hey, log in with Facebook or click here. We'll get your name, maybe your birth date, your email, maybe your friends list or some other things, sometimes more, sometimes less. The better sites take less data. What Cambridge academics were doing was developing this personality profile and did a little quiz where you logged in with Facebook. But because it was an academic institution, they made a deal with Facebook where they got more. They got to see all of your likes. They got to see who your friends were. They got to see what your friends' likes were. You, Which Scott. is pretty sketchy. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, it's one thing if you're the person taking the quiz and you sign in and say, yes, I agree to share this data. But you shouldn't really be able to do that on your friend's behalf. And I think Facebook's general policies were not to do this. It was just, oh, we're working with this these academics. They'll be cool or something. It's all It all gets very dodgy around this point. And a lot of the online experiments that have been happening over the last few years are really done without the same ethical oversight that happens in universities generally. So you're A-B tested on almost every major website you go to. Like you and I might see different websites just because they're trying to see, does making this font a little bigger make you more likely to buy something? It's fairly standard practice and that's fairly benign. But then you get into this next level bullshit where data is just being hoarded. And at some point, this academic research group joins with this for-profit company, Cambridge Analytica, and starts using it for political campaigning. And I think around the same time is when the shady Mercers start throwing money at it and telling Steve Bannon to take it up. And then that data fuels into some of the Republican campaigns, the Trump campaign especially, goes into Brexit, and it all just kind of rolls from there. Now, did Cambridge Analytica swing the election for Trump over Hillary? I think that's a hard case to make because it was such a tight election that yeah, you, everything you can li- did it. literally pick anything that happened in that election and be like, oh, if that's one thing I'd gone a little different, Hillary would have won. Doesn't hurt though to have extra data on swing states and what might make a difference to fifty thousand to seventy thousand people in those states. So, fifty million Americans' data wasn't breached according to Facebook or. Cambridge Analytica, but it wasn't really collected in an above-the-board fashion, let's say. And this is all what Wiley has basically told The Guardian, and there's some undercover footage and a lot of really good journalism, ironically exposing how fake news and other stories have spread. Because one of the videos shows the CEO of Cam- or the former CEO of Cambridge Analytica talking about how if you can't find good dirt on someone you know just make it up like this is bond villain level only more boring because it's all just on social media yeah although they're um tomorrow never dies the the villain was a newspaper mogul who literally started in wars to generate news so yeah not not that far off from an actual bond villain little did he know you don't even have to start the war you can just tell people shit's happening <laughs> and they'll go oh shit gotta click like on that The other weird part of the story that came in was, of course, a Russian connection with this random gas station company that was contracting Cambridge Analytica. And I think they ran something like two gas stations in the US. 
And we need all this very specific political affiliation data on Americans to know where we put our next gas station or something. So it comes back again to BC as a couple other places also reported that Cambridge Analytica's offshoot aggregate IQ that's still based in Victoria, I believe, was hired for at least three of the BC Liberal leadership candidates, including Todd Stone. The BC Liberals say in their statement that they were merely hired for basic social media management and encouraging voters to voluntarily indicate their support, which is what a lot of marketing firms do. It's what I use Nation Builder for. And, but it also, when you're tied to this, you're like, you don't hire a company like that to do basic social media management. You have Hootsuite in town to do that or whatever. I'm not saying Todd Stone was like trying to trump the election, but because it clearly didn't work, but none of this looks good. And also now everyone should probably delete their Facebook accounts after leaving us a five-star review there. <laughs> Where do we go from here? <laughs> Is it time to nationalize Facebook? Well, no, then the government owns all that data and that's equally terrifying. Well, the a, different ki- a different kind of terrifying. A lot of countries are starting to look at much stricter data protection laws. The EU has just brought in a pretty heavy data protection law that a lot of the companies I'm working with are revising their privacy policies in light of. Yeah, I've done at least three different, we're updating our terms of service notice within the last week. Meanwhile, Trudeau has had kind of a cozy relationship with Facebook and the tech companies saying, you know, as long as you're being cool, we want to look hip and trendy. I don't know enough about the tech sector, I guess, to know like how, I feel like we're in a legislative vacuum where these entities have been operating on goodwill and free reign, but we know people are pretty stupid and willing to click anything and give anything away. So like the reason we have seatbelts and had to legislate seatbelts is because people don't put them on, but you need them so you don't die and then our insurance rates go up. And maybe we need like a seatbelt law for Facebook. It's to stop all of us from giving too much data away. Yeah, there probably does need to be some sort of legislative change around that. Updated privacy at something along those lines. Moving on to quick takes. Justin Trudeau has named a new lieutenant governor of British Columbia. Finally, Judith Gishon's term had been extended at least two or three times, I believe because she was supposed to retire at some point last year. And then her job became super important for a while. But now Janet Austin, the recent CEO of YWCA of Metro Vancouver and a past executive director of Big Sisters Lower Mainland, is going to be our new lieutenant governor. She sounds pretty well qualified. She's been active on the TransLink board and a number of other areas. Although, is anyone really ever, like, qualified for the lieutenant governor role? Like, if you're not, like, a constitutional scholar, which I guess we kind of had with the past governor general, but there's no training for the governor or lieutenant governor role. It's it's a ceremonial role. You want to have someone who's widely respected in the community, somewhat nonpartisan, I would say. Yeah, not nonpartisan, willing to take advice when the actual constitutional experts say, yeah, this situation here you kind of need to do this to avoid a constitutional crisis and someone who really likes protocol or at least is willing to go along with all the protocol they have to do i got the sense because i did get to meet judith gishon that she as a rancher in her past life is not huge on protocol but she's willing to go through the motions for the office 
The other pick that I thought was noteworthy, and I think Devin Rowcliffe pointed this out to us on Twitter, is that Judy Foote was named the Lieutenant Governor of Newfoundland. Foote was elected in 2015 as the MP with who got the most votes as a percentage of any candidate in the country. She got 81% of the vote in her constituency. She was appointed to cabinet by Trudeau, but she resigned a bit later into her term, family reasons, I believe. And now she's going to be the Lieutenant Governor of Newfoundland. So it's fun to see someone go from cabinet to the like most nonpartisan role in the country or most nonpartisan role in her province in a matter of a couple of years. Yeah, a little breathing room probably would have been better. I don't believe she's the first cabinet minister to get a lieutenant governor appointment, but I don't believe it's done quite as quickly, typically. So this past week, we got a couple polls, one just on the BC horse race statistics and the other one kind of on the, where are all the premiers at? And turns out John Horton's fairly well liked, especially compared to some of his colleagues. Main Street's ongoing provincial polling came out for March and they found that among decided and leaning voters, the NDP has a five point lead over the BC Liberals. The NDP's got 36% support right now. The Liberals got 31%. Greens are doing well at 22%. And I think I actually saw this poll because the BC Conservatives were tweeting it out, bragging about the 9% they had and like 15% in the interior. And people were asking them, or at least pointing out, well, if you don't run candidates all over the province, you're not going to get that 9%. And it also really makes me wonder why Main Street is still including the Conservatives, considering I think they got about half a percent province-wide in the last election. Because they ran fewer than the Libertarians, although I think the Libertarians were still in the same range of very low vote. Yeah, they uh, beat the Libertarians by uh, 0.13%. But getting back to the headlines of this poll, the NDP has a lot of good news to take out of this. This is another strong poll for them. They were in the lead in every region in the province where they were actually the closest or tightest. I think they were within a statistical margin of error in the interior with the Liberals but they were ahead. And in the island, the NDP leads the Greens 35% to 34%, which is pretty tight race on the island. That could result in quite a few seats hit flipping hands if there were an election held tomorrow, as they like to ask. The other good news story for John Horgan is that he is tied with Scott Moe, the new leader of the Saskatchewan party, as the two most popular premiers in the country with 52% approval ratings. Uh, Horgan's actually up 3% over last month's Angus Reid survey on this, and Moe is down a percent. Most of the liberal premiers, actually most of the premiers in this country are liberals, but they are in the bottom four, except for Dwight Ball, who has jumped up to 42% support. Poor Kathleen Wynne is sitting down at 19%, and next door's Rachel Notley is at 33%, which puts her in the middle of the pack. It feels like that's pretty bad, but, you know, when you're fifth of ten. Although not as unpopular as Kathleen Wynne isn't a great uh, metric to compare yourself with. It's good news for Horgan, though. I mean, he's still in a honeymoonish phase. It's early in his premiership that he didn't expect to get, and the liberals were pretty unpopular at the end there, so there's going to be some glow. In the fall, he managed to check off a lot of the 
campaign promises he'd made and now he's got the budget which is starting to show some action and maybe this uproar over the speculation tax will start to hurt him or maybe that's just the two percent of homeowners who are really grumpy but really noisy i think he's good for a little while as long as he does something with the rest of his spring legislative sitting if i'm an ndp strategist i'm smiling pretty big right now yeah and if i was a liberal or a uh green strategist i'd yeah start to get a little worried that that isn't getting chipped away at especially with the new leader on the liberal side and the greens trying to you know make themselves out as you know these independent people who you know are holding the government to account and everything and not just part of it and they definitely got their seats because people had some reservations about the ndp and some areas and i'm not sure that's necessarily going to carry forward as much if forging continues his popularity that's actually the thing with the greens as strong as they are in here and the liberals as weak the greens could actually chip away a lot of liberal votes in the interior and make those three-way races where the ndp wins the flip and it could mean that the greens only pick up a couple more seats mostly at the cost hands of the liberals but they actually flip a whole bunch to the ndp so where the greens have three seats right now but the balance of power they could go into a situation where they had eight ten seats but are in a majority ndp situation we'd have to get someone like brian to run the seat projection which i don't think anyone's looking at right now i think he's busy trying to predict what the hell's happening with ontario right now it's definitely not in anyone but John Horgan's interest to go to an election right now. So that means he's pretty free to do things like, I guess, make giant handouts to the LNG industry if he so wants to. And he apparently does. Well, one thing Horgan does want to put his weight behind is this high-speed rail study with Washington and Oregon. He has announced that BC is going to be contributing $300,000 to the study of a high-speed rail, which I think the other states are providing a significant more yeah, amount it's a multi, to. I believe it's a multi-million dollar study, so it's a So it's a good deal team. for us. Yes. Realistically. Although it's probably fairly proportional to the actual length of track in each state. So this does help us advance the conversation around high-speed rail. There's a bunch of optimistic projections of how many jobs this could create, but I guess it's the study that will tell us. And then 10 years after the study, someone will probably study it again. And then eventually we'll get a rail once there's a hyperloop eventually. or something. Yeah, it, it's, Canada's really good at doing high-speed rail studies. We haven't actually built any high-speed rail. I'd be super stoked for a high-speed rail to Portland or even just Seattle. Yeah, and this is one of the areas, the Cascadia Quarter, that would actually make a fair bit of sense for high-speed rail. It's got the population. It's roughly the right size to do high-speed rail effectively. There's a fairly straight right-of-way, which is something, say, rail to Calgary lacks. <laughs> and, you know, Calgary's just prohibitive for that reason in that you'd have to viaduct and tunnel your entire way across, you know, a couple mountain ranges. Whereas this, it's, you know, a nice straight shot down which would yeah work fairly well i think be practical and you know we'll see if it's worth the money but is the sort of thing that would make a lot of sense and would actually think be good to get better connections between here and the other major cities in the region on another announcement today 
the BC government said that Amplify BC, which is a music industry funding group, is going to get another $7.5 million to keep it going for another year. This is a program that the BC Liberals had started and put a bit of money towards, and the BC NDP are going to keep it going at least for one more year. We are tipped off to this story by friend of the show, Ian Cromwell at Crominist. Neither of us are big in the music scene, so I did ask him for his hot takes, and you know, he said on Twitter, grassroots groups are going to be disappointed again, as this funding is primarily targeted at more industry or established corporations rather than like your independent musician. But he still thinks it's generally a good thing as money flowing into the music sector does help musicians writ large, even if it's not as accessible for the person trying to get a gig with a couple songs in their pocket. But I guess the hope here is that this funding, which isn't a ton, really acts as a tipping point to really launch BC music to the next level. I think BC's actually done pretty well for ourselves in terms of having a lot of pretty cool musicians over the last few years come out, and even historically. And Vancouver has a bit of a scene, but it's very fragile, I get the sense of. Like, there are a lot of cool musicians here, and we've launched a number who've gone on to win Junos and Grammys even and become famous, but Canada is such a small media consumption market that if there isn't the support there, kind of just dries up and... You know, you can spend your weekends playing gigs, but you still need a full-time job. Like said, the whale is able to tour and make pretty cool Vancouver-based music because of the support of things like The Peak and some of the BC cultural investments. Well, as a follow-up to last week's discussion of the FIFA World Cup and why we decided not to go for it, Mike Smith at the province got a hold of some of the details for what would have actually been involved and, well, reading through, you get a pretty good sense of why we said no. So the long and the short of it is we basically have to pay for everything. And whether that's 800 plus free parking spots for FIFA officials, police motorcades to escort them through the city... Just all of their taxes, regardless of whether they're paying for it or like their suppliers are paying for like anything, anything that eventually goes through FIFA doesn't get pay taxes. It's just you know, it seems like a pretty rotten deal all around. So the agreement he got, and he doesn't say how, but that's fine. That's cool. That's journalism, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Is the current one in place for the previous Russia? World Cup and what we're assuming BC would be negotiating against. So it might be that the actual agreement would have been totally different, but there's no reason to really believe that. At least I don't think. So yeah, all of the lines in it of this 61-page agreement that he pulls out are just like, the host city is responsible for all costs to fulfill its obligations. Uh, it talks about protection zone that bans unauthorizing advertising and commercial activity and creates a controlled zone around the stadium. Now, in Russia, where the last World Cup was, that was a two-kilometer radius. You pulled up a little map of what two kilometers from 
BC Place looks like. Yeah, so that's City Hall, Granville Island, almost all of the West End. It's it's big. And I know when the Olympics were coming to Vancouver, there was a lot of worry because part of the Olympic deal was you have to ban all signs that private individuals might put up unless they're Olympic sponsor approved kind of advertising. And when you tell a city like Vancouver that, immediately people start protesting with Pepsi or whatever, just to be subversive. And if you're going to tell all of downtown Vancouver that they can't advertise unless it's a FIFA approved sponsor, it's a bit out of hand. So Mike Smith concludes from his skim of this, his read of this deal that, yeah, BC made the right call in turfing this deal, but I'm sure there are still the rabid sports fans out there who think we've given up a golden opportunity to cash in that big global tourism. But I feel vindicated. Yeah, no, I'm completely on board with the let's not hand out a bunch of money and some city governance to a very corrupt FIFA. And a huge shout out to Mike Smith for getting this and just putting it on the province's website. This is why we still need journalists. Well, finally, at the federal level this week on Tuesday, Justin Trudeau was making a lot of noise about Bill C-71, which he tabled in the House of Commons. And this is the new gun control legislation that I don't really remember them talking about, except maybe as a tertiary campaign it, it featured during the It was during the election okay. they talked about it, and... Um... At least one of the elements here, they froze the change that they're now repealing rather vigorously back when the previous government introduced it near the end of their term. The basic elements that they're trying to put in are enhanced background checks, quote, cracking down on illegal handguns and assault weapons, making some new requirements for uh, vendors to keep track of what guns are being sold. But that's not a gun registry. And also stricter rules on transporting uh, assault weapons and some of the heavier Well, yeah, weapons. so the that was actually the one I was referring to earlier. Actually, I should go back to how it was original. So any restricted firearm, you have to both have your restricted firearms license. And a restricted firearm is a pistol, some rifles, like an AR-15, for example, generally falls into that category, although some versions are prohibited. You had to have your restricted license, and then you also had to get a separate piece of paper authorizing you to take it to the range. And you were only allowed to take it to the range or a gunshot base or a gunsmith. And what happened in 2014, 2015, somewhere around there, is those two uh, pieces of paper effectively got rolled into a single document. So where if you had your restricted firearms license, you also had the authorization to transport at the same time, which... It simplified things. Like if if you had the restricted firearms license, there isn't a huge like public safety reason why you should necessarily have to then get a separate piece of paper to take it to the range. Yeah, like it, it's yeah. So it it was something the liberals you know went on about as a you know we're weakening the gun laws or whatever. But it's it was a very minor tweak. Yeah, I don't have strong opinions on what tweaks we should or shouldn't do to gun legislation in Canada. I think we have a fairly sensible Yeah, I think it balances out agreement. Yeah, things fairly well. And like the background chats, even before this enhanced requirement, every day 
the system would run everyone who has a firearms license against the criminal database that the RCMP maintains. Like, someone gets charged within 24 hours, the systems flayed that as, oh, hey, we should kind of get his guns. What did stand out to me far more about this round was how Americanized the liberal messaging was. So Trudeau's tweet was, today we're taking action for common sense gun control, better background checks and safer communities while protecting the rights of law-abiding gun owners, which just sounds like a Democrat talking point. And someone forwarded us as well, a Liberal Party email that basically just talked about how, you know, they're fighting Canada's NRA and, you know, we have to protect the rights of gun owners, which is also not a thing in Canada. Gun owners, like, they have the privilege to own guns, and I'm not trying to take that away because my dad owns guns and there are legitimate hunting and some purposes for them. But we don't have the Second Amendment in Canada. We don't have a charter enshrined right to a gun. Yeah, well, this whole thing felt very much like a what is Canada's policy response to an American problem? It's very much seems to be a reaction to the issues the Americans are having around gun violence down there and not as much to kind of the Canadian issues around firearms. And that's where I almost wonder if this risks a backlash. Like, does pushing this level of rhetoric forward force the Conservatives into basically just adopting it and then taking a Republican position on guns, which none of us want? I think we want a relatively, we have a good consensus. Let's not break it, Justin. Come on. We don't need to get into this common sense gun control. We have, feel if you took a poll of most Canadians, there's going to be extremes on there, but most people will go, yeah, we're doing okay. Like yeah. some things are annoying, but people aren't shooting up schools regularly in this country. Like none of these things are too like, draconian. I mean, the, the enhanced background chats rather than going back, I think it's five years is the current system. They're basically going back through everyone's entire life, which there's maybe some concerns about, you know, if someone did something stupid at 18 and then being a very productive member of society for the next 40 years, should they necessarily be prohibited from owning a firearm for the occasional bit of hunting? Like, you know, you can maybe get into something like that, but I'm sure that'll be worked out when the legislation actually goes through parliament. And then, yeah, the record keeping for vendors, yeah, reasonable transport rules. Okay, you're making it slightly more bureaucratic and it's an unnecessary change, but... Well, and that just highlights like how trivial these changes are, which makes the entire thing just another PR exercise for the Trudeau government. Yeah, and I, this is very much a look how tough we are on guns sort of thing as we're and playing off the news in the States, I think more than a very serious Canadian issue that they needed to take action on. And that has been Politghost. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.